0: For the last uh, 20 years, I've been trying to understand morality. Uh, and I, I think you can think of, of, of morality as uh, having to, two basic questions. One is a descriptive scientific question. Is how, how does it work? How does moral thinking work? And why are we the kinds of moral creatures that we are? And why are we immoral to the extent that we're immoral? And then the, the, the further normative question of, of how can we make better moral decisions? Uh, Is there any fact of the matter about what's right or wrong at all? Um, If so, what is it? Is there a theory that organizes that explains what's right or what's wrong? And so these are the questions that have occupied me really my my whole adult life uh, so far, both as as a philosopher and as a a scientist. So what what I'd like to do today is present two ideas about morality on two different levels. Uh, One is what is, what, are, what is the structure of moral problems? Uh, are there different kinds of moral problems? And then the other is, what is the structure of moral thinking? Are there different kinds of moral thinking? And, and then put, put those together to get at a kind of normative idea, which is that the key to moral progress is to match the right kind of thinking with the right kind of... Uh, like many people, I think that morality is fundamentally about the problem of, of cooperation. Uh, that you know, as 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 it, there are things that we can accomplish together that we can't accomplish as individuals, and that's why it makes sense for us, whether us as humans or cells inside a body or uh, individual wolves coming together to form a pack of wolves, individuals can gain more by working together than they can separately. Teamwork is 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 effective, but teamwork is also problematic because there's always the temptation to pull for yourself instead of the team. And that's the fundamental problem of cooperation. Um, I think the best illustration of, of the problem of cooperation comes from the ecologist Garrett Hardin, uh, who, who talked about what he called the tragedy of the commons. So this is a parable that he used to illustrate the problem of overpopulation, but it really applies to any cooperation problem. And so the story goes like this. You have a bunch of herders who are raising sheep on a common pasture. And uh, each of them faces the following question every so often. Should I add another animal to my herd? And a rational herder thinks like this, well if I add another animal to my herd then I get more money when I take that animal to market. That's the upside, it's a pretty good upside. What's the downside? Well, that animal has to be supported but since we're sharing this common pasture uh, the cost is going to be shared among everybody But since it's my herd, the benefit all comes to me. So I'll add another animal to my herd and then another one and another one. And it's not just that herder. All the herders have the same set of incentives, Uh, but then something happens. Everybody's added so many animals to their herds that the the commons, the pasture, can't support them all and the animals eat all of the grass and then there's no food left and all the animals die and all the people are left hungry. Um, That's the tragedy of the commons and it's essentially uh, 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 about the tension between individual rationality and collective rationality. What's good for me versus what's good for us? What's good for us is for everybody... (coughs) to limit the size of their herds so that you could have a sustainable future in which everybody gets to share the commons and there's enough to go around for everybody. But what's good for me is to have everybody else limit their herds and I add more and more animals to my herd and I get more for myself. Um, so that's that's the fundamental problem of cooperation that is pulling for yourself versus do, do, doing what's good for the group. How do you solve that? Well, uh, morality is essentially nature's Solution to this problem. That is we have some concern for the well-being of others That is I'm going to limit the size of my herd because it would be bad for 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 other people Uh, And we also have and and we have a a, a sort of higher level concern where we're we're disdainful towards people who don't do that So if you see a herder who's adding more and more animals to her herd you say hey come on Uh, You know you're 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 being selfish here. Um, That's the fundamental problem now There are different ways of being cooperative. There are different ways of solving that problem. So at one extreme, we have the communist solution, which is to say that uh, not only are we going to have a common pastor, we'll just have a common herd. Um, Everybody shares everything. And now there's no incentive for anyone to pull for themselves instead of the group, because everything is just shared. Another solution to that problem is to be completely individualistic and to say, not only are we not gonna have a shared herd, we're not gonna have a shared pasture. We're gonna divide up the commons into different plots and everybody gets their own little piece of it and everybody takes care of themselves. And neither of these is inherently moral or immoral. They're different terms on which a group can be cooperative. One more collectivist and the other more individualist. And there are other sort of questions that you might, might face, right? So suppose somebody, tries to take one of my animals. Am I allowed to defend myself? Am I allowed to kill them? Am I allowed to carry an assault weapon uh, to defend my herd against people who might take it? Some tribes will say, no, you're not. You're, there are limits to what you can do to, to defend your herds. Other others will say you're, you 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 can do whatever you want as long as as long as you're you're defending what's yours. Um, are we going to have some kind of health insurance for our herds? Uh, if if someone's animals get sick, do the rest of us come and pay for them or pay for part of their care, and so on and so forth? There there are different ways for groups to be cooperative, and uh, and, and 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 they can work fine separately. But what happens when you have different groups that come together? Uh, So you can imagine a scenario like this. You uh, You have two different tribes, and you've got, let's say, your collectivist tribe over here where everything's in common, and your individualist tribe over there. And you can imagine these tribes not only have different ways of cooperating, but they rally around different gods, different leaders, different holy texts that tell them how they should live, that you're not allowed to sing on Wednesdays in this group, and in this group over here, women are allowed to be herders, but in this group over there, they're they're not. Different ways of life, different ways of organizing society, and you can imagine these societies existing separately, and then suppose these societies are separated by a forest, and then that forest burns down, and the rains come, and then suddenly you have this nice, lovely pasture, and both tribes move in, and now the question is, how are they going to? How are they going to do this with different tribes that get that that are cooperative in different ways? Uh, are they going to be individualistic? Are they going to be collectivist? Are they going to pray to this god? Are they going to pray to that god? Are they going to be allowed to have assault weapons or not allowed to have assault weapons? And that's the fundamental problem of the modern world, right? That basic morality solves the tragedy of the commons, but it doesn't solve what I call the tragedy of common sense morality. That each moral tribe has its own sense of what's right or wrong, sense of how people ought to get along with each other and treat each other, but uh, the common senses of the different tribes are different, uh, and that's the fundamental and moral problem. So what I would say is first there are really two different kinds of problems, cooperation problems. One is getting individuals within a group to cooperate, and then the other is getting groups that are separately cooperative to cooperate with each other. And one is the basic moral problem, and I think that's the problem that our brains were designed to solve. And then you have this more complex modern problem where it's not about getting individuals to get along, but about getting groups with different moralities, essentially, to get along with each other. So that's the first idea, that morality and moral problems are not one kind. that They really come in two fundamentally different kinds, which we can think of me versus us, individuals versus the group, and us versus them, our values versus their values, our interests versus their interests, right? So that's idea number one. Idea number two is there are different kinds of thinking. uh, That I I think of the human mind and the human brain as being like a camera, like a digital camera that has on the one hand automatic settings. So point and shoot, you put it in manual mode, uh, sorry, you put it in, have your landscape uh, or or, or your portrait setting and it's point-and-shoot and and it works or you can put your camera in manual mode where you can adjust everything. So why, why would a camera have those two different ways of taking photos? Well, the idea is that the automatic settings are very efficient, it's just point and shoot. So if you wanna take a picture of somebody in natural in, in, in indoor light from not too far away, you put it in portrait uh, and you get a pretty good shot with one, one click of a button. Um, so it's very efficient, but it's not very flexible. It's good for that one thing. With manual mode, where you can adjust the f-stop and everything else yourself, you can do anything, but it takes some time, it takes some expertise. You have to stop and slow down and you have to know what you're doing. Um, And what's nice about that is that it's very flexible. It's not very efficient, but you can do anything with it, whatever kind of photographic situation you're in or whatever you're trying to achieve. If you know how to work the manual settings, you can get the the, the photograph that you want. And so on a camera, it's nice to have both of these things because they allow you to navigate the trade-off between efficiency and flexibility. And the idea is that the human brain has essentially the same design. We have automatic settings, and our automatic settings are our gut reactions. They're our emotional responses. They're the, 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 the pre-compiled responses that allow us to deal with the typical everyday situations that we face. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're hardwired, that they that they're they come from our genes. These can be things that are shaped by our, by our genes, but they're also shaped by our cultural experiences and our individual uh, trial and error learning. But, but, but it's, it's the things that, that we, we've had some kind of experience with, either our own experience or our culture has had experience with this, or our ancestors genetically have had experience with this, and we're benefiting from that wisdom in a kind of point-and-shoot gut reaction that says, hey, that's a snake, you should be afraid of that, or you should should take a step back, right? Um, And then manual mode is our capacity for reasoning, that we don't just have to go with our gut reactions, we can stop and we can think, uh, and we can say, well, does this really make sense? So, A place where this is clearest is when it comes to to, to eating. So there's a really nice uh, uh, experiment that was done by by Baba Shiv, uh, where they had people come into the lab, and they, they, they were told they were coming in for a memory experiment, and uh, they were told to remember a string of numbers, and then go down the hall, and they're going to have to to repeat the numbers back to somebody else. And they said, by the way, we have some snacks for you. Um, on, you'll see a little cart with some snacks on it. On your way down the hall, you can pick up a snack. And on the cart were two kinds of snacks. There were fruit salad and there was chocolate cake. And, of course, uh, you know, at least for people who are watching their weight, which is a lot of people, uh, the chocolate cake would be much more enjoyable now, but people in general would rather have eaten the fruit salad instead of the chocolate cake. When you think about your waistline in a bathing suit this coming summer, that's the, the larger goal off in the future. So they got chocolate cake and they got fruit salad, and they asked people to remember different strings of numbers. Some were very short. They were easy to remember. Some were long. Mentally taxing and what they found is that when people had to remember the longer numbers They were more likely to choose chocolate cake Especially if they're impulsive. So what's going on? Well, the idea is that remember having to remember Those numbers is occupying your manual mode. It's occupying your capacity for explicit conscious Thinking. So Daniel Kahneman calls this thinking fast and slow. It's it's, uh, uh, it's 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 occupying your capacity for slow, more deliberative thought. So your brain is uh, your, your 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 slow thinking brain. Your manual mode is taken up with these numbers, and then you're faced with this choice between the immediate gratifying reward, the chocolate cake, or the long term reward, which is maintaining your weight the way you'd like. And what you see is that, as I said, uh, when you've got manual mode occupied, you go more with, the, with, the, with, with 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 the impulse. And what this what this experiment nicely illustrates is this familiar tension between the automatic impulse uh, and the long-term goal, right? Uh, and we, we see this kind of structure all over the place so it's not just when it comes to things like eating food it comes to for example in our uh, reactions to members of other groups so if you show uh, if you show uh, typical white people at least in the United States uh, uh, very quickly pictures of, of, of black men you'll get this flash of, of, of a signal in the amygdala, a part of the brain that's responsible for kind of sending off an early alarm system. And if, if it's a very quick exposure, then that's all you see. But if you let people look at the pictures longer, then you see, uh, you, you, you see a dampening down of that response and an in- increased activity in another part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is really the seat of 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 manual mode, um, so dorsolateral prefrontal cortex on, on on the sort of outsides of the of, of of the front of the brain. So, the idea is that your automatic settings say chocolate cake now, great, uh, and your manual mode says no no no, it's not worth it. Have the fruit salad and be and, and and be thinner later. Okay. So two different kinds of thinking, which you might call fast and slow. And earlier I said there are two different kinds of moral problems. There is the uh, there, there's the problem of getting individuals to get along in a group, the tragedy of the commons, me versus us. And there's the problem of getting groups to get along, the problem of us versus them. And what I've been thinking about is how these two things fit together. And the hypothesis is that there's a, there's a, there's a normative match. That is, our automatic settings, our gut reactions, are very good at solving the first problem the tragedy of the commons. They're not so good at solving the second problem. And if you want to make moral progress, what you need to do is match them up in the right way. When it comes to treating other people well, when it comes to me versus us, am I going to be selfish or am I going to do the nice thing for the other people in my world? For most people, their gut reactions about that are pretty good. Now, that doesn't mean people are not selfish. We all know that people can be very selfish. But people at least have moral instincts that make them pretty good in that way. So let me give you an example of this. So uh, I did an experiment uh, with David Rand and Martin Novak, a set of experiments, in which we basically had people face the tragedy of the commons in the lab. This is using what's called the public goods game. Uh, so the way the public goods game works is everybody gets a sum of money, let's say there are four people. and then Uh, everybody can put their money into a common pool and then the experimenter will double the amount of money in the pool and it gets divided equally among everybody. So what do you do? Well, if you're selfish, you keep your money. Why? Well, because everybody else puts in, it gets doubled, you get a share of whatever everybody else puts in, and you get your original share. That's the selfish thing to do. The best thing to do for the group, the us thing to do, is for everybody to put all their money in. Uh, that way you maximize the amount that gets doubled and everybody comes away better. So if you want to maximize the group payoff, everybody puts in. And if you want to maximize your own payoff, you don't put anything in. And it's just like the herders on, on, on in, in Hardin's Tragedy of the Commons. That the, the group, the best, what's best for the group is for everybody to limit their herds. But what's best for you is to just take more and more animals, take more and more of the commons for yourself. So what do people do? Well, it turns out it depends on how they're thinking. So we looked at people's reaction times while they're making these judgments and what we found is something that may be surprising. That is, in general, the faster people made their decisions the more likely they were to do the cooperative thing. And when we put people under time pressure they ended up putting more money into the common pool. And if we ask people, think of a time when you you trusted your intuitions and it worked out well. that made people put more money in. If we say, think of a time when you when you engaged in deliberate, careful reasoning and that worked out well, that makes people put in less. And what all three of these kinds of experiments are pointing to is the conclusion that I stated before, which is that uh, it, when it comes to the tragedy of the commons, we have pretty good instincts about this. That, uh, that we have a, a, a gut reaction that says, okay, do the, do, the, do the cooperative thing. Now, I should add, this is not true for everybody in all circumstances. It, as our, for other experiments we've done, analyses we've done, suggest that it really depends on the kind of culture in which one has grown up. But at least for some people, a lot of the time, uh, the first thought is to be cooperative. Um, and that suggests that we do indeed have these kinds of instincts, whether they're genetic instincts or culturally-honed instincts or instincts honed from one's personal experience, whatever it is, The point and shoot automatic settings say, go ahead and do the cooperative thing, right? Um, And it's manual mode thinking that says, wait a second, hold on. I could really get screwed here. Maybe I shouldn't do this, right? So that suggests the the first point. That is that there's a nice fit between going with your gut, automatic settings, point and shoot, fast thinking, and solving that basic cooperation problem of how do you get a bunch of individuals to get along with each other. Okay, so what about the other problem? the Tragedy of common sense morality, when it's us versus them. This is where I think our instincts get us in trouble. You also see this in the indifference that we have towards faraway strangers. So uh, many years ago, the philosopher Peter Singer posed the following hypothetical dilemma. He says, suppose you're walking by a pond and there's a child who's drowning there and you can wade in and save this child's life. But if you do this, you're gonna ruin your your, your your fancy shoes and your fancy suit, um, might cost you $500, $1,000, more depending on how fancy you are, uh, to save this child's life, should you do it? Or is it okay to not do it? And almost everybody says, no, of course you'd be a monster if you let this child drown because you were thinking about your clothes. And then Peter Singer says, okay, well, what about this question, uh, there are children the other side of the world, in the Horn of Africa, let's say, who desperately need uh, food and water and medicine, not to mention having an education and some kind of political representation and so on and so forth, and, and to just help satisfy someone's basic needs, keep somebody alive until, uh, for, for, for a better day. Let's say you can donate $500, $1,000, something that, that's not substantial but that you can afford, the kind of money you might spend on a nice set of clothes, um, and you could save somebody's life to do that. Do you have a moral obligation to do that? And, and, and most people's thought is, well, it's nice if you do that, but you're not a monster if you don't do that. We all do that all the time. Now, there are two different responses to this problem. One is to say, well, these are just very different. Here you have a real moral obligation, saving, that, uh, to, to, saving the child who's, who's, who, who's drowning. And over here, it's a nice thing to do, but you don't have to do it. You don't have, there's no strong moral demand there. Um, and that there must be some good explanation for why it's okay, you have an obligation here, but you don't have an obligation there. That's one possibility. <clears throat> Another possibility is that what we're seeing here are the limitations of intuitive human morality, that we evolved uh, we, we evolved in a, in, 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 to, in, in a world in which we didn't deal with people on the other side of the world, and, and, and really the world was our group. We're the good guys, they're the bad guys, the people on the, on the other side of the hill, they're the competition. Uh, and so we have heartstrings that you can tug, but you can't tug them from very far away, right? And that there's not a necessarily a moral reason why we're like this, it's a tribal reason why we're like this. We're designed to be good to the people within our group to solve the tragedy of the commons but we're not designed for the tragedy of common sense morality. We're not designed to find a good solution between our well-being and their well-being. We're really about me and about us, but we're not so much about them. Um, So what, is that right? Well, first let me tell you about an experiment. This was done as an undergraduate thesis project with a wonderful student named Jay Musen. Um, We asked people a whole bunch of questions about helping people. Um, and one of the, the starkest comparisons goes like this. So in one version, uh, you're, 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 you're traveling uh, on vacation in a poor country. You have this nice cottage up in the mountains overlooking the coast and the sea, and then a terrible typhoon hits, and there's widespread devastation, and there are people without food and without medicine, and uh, there's, there's sanitary problems, and people are getting sick. And you can help you can, uh, there's already a relief effort on the ground. What they need is just money to, to provide supplies and you can make a donation. You've got your credit card um, and, uh, and you can help these people. We ask people, do you have an obligation to help? And a majority, about 60 something percent of the people we asked, said, yes, you have an obligation to do something to help these people down on the coast below that you can see. Then we asked a separate group of people the following question, suppose your friend is vacationing in this faraway place and you describe the situation is exactly the same except instead of you're there, it's your friend who's there and your friend has a smartphone and can show you everything that's going on. Everything your friend sees, you can see. Everything that your friend can do to help, you can help. The best way to help is to donate money and you can do that from home just as well. Do you have an obligation to help? And here about half as many people say that it's okay, that you have an obligation to help, about 30%. Now, what's nice about this comparison is that it cleans up a lot of the mess in Singer's original hypothetical, right? That you can say, well, um, you know, you're, you're, you're in a better position to help in one case, but not in the other case, or there are a lot of different victims uh, in one case, so there's only one victim. So we've equalized a lot of the things there. And you still see this big difference. And it's possible, maybe, what's really right is to say, no, you really have an obligation to help when you're standing there, and you really don't have an obligation when you're at home. That's one interpretation. I can't prove that it's wrong. But I think another as plausible, in my view, more plausible possibility is that we're just seeing the limitations of our moral instincts. That again, our moral heartstrings, so to speak, were designed to be tugged, but not from very far away. But it's not for a moral reason. It's not because it's good for us to be that way. It's because caring about ourselves and our small little tribal group helped us survive. And caring about the other groups, the competition, didn't help us survive. If anything, we should have negative attitudes towards them. We're competing with them for resources. And so bringing us back to our two problems, what this suggests is that, you know, if if you agree that the well-being, the happiness of people on the other side of the world is just as important as the happiness of people here, right? I mean, we may be partial to ourselves and to our family and to our friends, but if you don't think that objectively we're any better or more important, that our lives are any more valuable than other people's lives, well, then we can't trust our instincts about this. And we have to shift ourselves into manual mode. And so sort of bring this all full circle, two kinds of problems, two kinds of thinking. We've got individuals getting together as, as groups, me versus us. And there we want to trust those gut reactions. We want to trust the gut reactions that say, be nice, be cooperative, put your money into the pool and, 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 and help the group out. And we're pretty good at that. But when it comes to us versus them, when it comes to distrusting people who are different from us, who are members of other racial groups or ethnic groups, when it comes to helping people who really could benefit enormously from from, from our resources, but who don't have a kind of personal connection to us, when it comes to things like that, us versus them, their interests versus our interests or their interests versus my interests or their values versus my values, our instincts may not be so reliable. And that's when we may need to shift into manual mode. Um, so that's what I've been thinking about. In philosophical terms, I think that there actually is a philosophy that accords with this. And that philosophy has a terrible name. Uh, it's known as utilitarianism. Uh, and uh, the idea behind utilitarianism uh, is that what really matters is the quality of people's lives, people's suffering, people's happiness, how, 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 how their experience ultimately goes. and. Uh, the other idea is that we should be impartial. It essentially incorporates the golden rule. It says that one person's well being is not any more ultimately any more important than anybody else's. And you put those two ideas together and what you basically get is a solution, a philosophical solution to the problems of of, 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 of the modern world, which is our global philosophy should be we should just try to make the world as happy as possible. But this has a lot of counterintuitive implications. And philosophers have spent the last century going through all of the ways in which this seems to get things wrong. And uh, maybe a, a discussion for another time, maybe uh, later, is should we trust those instincts that tell us that we shouldn't be going for the greater good? Is the problem with our instincts or is the problem with the, with, with, with the philosophy? And what I, what I argue, is that our moral instincts are not as reliable as we think, and that uh, when our instincts work against the greater good, we should put them aside at least as, 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 as much as we can. And that if we want to have a global philosophy, one that we can all sign on to, regardless of which moral tribes we're coming from, it's going to require us to things that don't necessarily feel right in our hearts either it's asking too much of us or it feels like it's it's asking us to do things that are wrong to betray certain ideals but I think that's the price that we'll have to pay if we want to have a kind of common currency if we want to have a philosophy that we can all live by and that's what uh, ultimately my research is about it's about trying to understand how our thinking works what's actually going on in our heads when we're making moral decisions, it's about trying to understand the structure of moral problems. And ultimately, the goal is to produce a kind of moral philosophy that can help us solve uh, our, our, our distinctively complex uh, moral problems.